And we're live. Welcome back to yet another episode of the, I almost called us the Sci-Fi Shenanigan. You know, you think after three years I get the new title right. But uh, welcome back to another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Joseph Joe Alalo, um, introduce himself to you, dear listener, dear viewer. So Joe, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Joseph Lalo. I write under the name Joseph R. Lalo. Uh, I am uh, an author of science fiction and fantasy and steampunk. I've got over 40 books out. I've, you lose track past a certain point. Uh, I'm also the co-host of the uh, Six Figure Authors podcast, which technically is still going. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so I've, I've been writing since 2010. Uh, I have been a full-time self-published author since about 2014. And uh, yeah, that's where I am right now. Outstanding. And the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we found them. So I actually found Joe on his podcast that he did before the Six Figure Author, which was, I think, Sci-Fi and Fantasy Marketing, I think. Yeah, the Science uh, Fiction and Fantasy Marketing Podcast. Yes. Uh, it was really hard to forget that one. Clearly, I still remember it. So that's where I actually found them. And so, you know, we've had uh, the other guests or the other hosts at one point or other on the show. And Joe was the last one to track down, mostly because I couldn't spell your name, your last name. I kept spelling it wrong, and I couldn't find you. So finally, I just was like, you know what? Let me ask Lindsay. And so Lindsay gave me your <laughs> your uh, social media so I could track you down. Um, but uh, but thank you for coming on. But before we get started, we do have to ask you the religion question. So we, we decide if you get to stay, because no. uh, it's really important to our readers and our listeners. But Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Uh, why or? We got to do or? I I guess I I guess I would have to do Star Trek. It's a hard decision. So we do have some that'll say all of the above. You know, I'm non-denominational. We have some that'll like none of those. They all suck. I pick I don't know Doctor Who. So there is no wrong answer. But, okay. But those are yeah. the three most iconic, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I would have to agree. So all right, and because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Willow. Um, you know, honestly, I'm going to have to say Willow. Excellent. I grew up, I, I watched that as a kid. I haven't checked out the new show. Have you checked out the new, um, episodic one? No, I haven't. Checked I've heard, out. I hear it's pretty good. I've heard mixed things. They, they said that in the show they have Willow is just sort of there so it can use the name okay. and he's just, the you know, the chorus kind of thing. Like, did you know Bob kind of role? Okay. So if they did that to him, I'd be disappointed, but at least they didn't try to rewrite it with new actors. They just took the story like forward in the universe. If, if you're going to do that after a lag, that's kind of what you have to do. Yeah. So, all right. So we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast love both the fantastical and the scientific. But what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? So um, that's a really good question. I, for, for me, what it usually comes down to is I would watch a lot of sci-fi and read a lot of fantasy. So I guess I was probably watching before I was reading. So we'll we'll say sci-fi first, but it's 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 a it's a close one. Probably honestly, I said Star Trek. Probably Star Wars was the first thing where I was like, oh, that's what that's what uh, sci-fi is. Uh, and then I started reading fantasy like crazy, and then uh, Star Trek basically mostly after Next Generation was off the air, and I started watching it in syndication. Is when I was like, oh, this is 
this is really good at least 60% of the time. <laughs> and so I yes. tried to get into it. So what was the first fantasy property that you found? Do you remember? Um, so, I mean, I had an awareness, like we mentioned Willow. Willow was definitely on the list. Uh, but oh, what would be the first? I guess, honestly, the first uh, uh, fantasy property that I like really dug deep into wasn't even a book or a movie. It was Dragon Warrior, <laughs> a.k.a. Dragon Quest, the, but the original one for the NES. It's a video game. Oh, okay. Yeah, old school. It's the most generic possible plot. But I was just like, it would, like I mean, generic is, is great. This is the baseline. I'll build off of this. And then, you know, eventually uh, uh, Lord of the Rings obviously finds its way into there. And more recently than that, but still quite a long time ago, was Discworld, which I just consumed in one gigantic sequence. We actually, when we first started doing the religion questions, it was Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, and Lord of the Rings. But we had to change Lord of the Rings out because it just wasn't fair. Everyone picked that one because yeah, it was sort of the foundational. Yeah, exactly. And so I've got to find something equally as iconic as Wheel of Times and Game of Thrones. I just haven't found it yet. So we just keep mixing it up. Um, so what um, the game, like, was that something you uh, sort of organically found when you were playing on that NES? Or was that something that your friend recommended? Like, how did you say, hey, you know, out of all the games out there, I want to play this fantasy one. So, um, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of, we had, well, you know, the NES, we're talking like the late 80s when this is coming out. Uh, I didn't have any control over what I was going to get. Uh, probably my older brother is the one who chose that game. And it was like one of the three okay. games we had. So I just kept on, I was terrible at it because in the late 80s, I was like in single digits age. I was, I was probably, I probably didn't beat the game until I was like nine. Um, but uh, so like, I would just play it over and over and over again. And I was just like, it was it was like i learned it by rote that like okay so there will be a knight and the knight is a descendant and the and the knight will rescue a princess because he was sent there by a king and like i was like learning it like it was the commandments and then i had friends, <laughs> I had friends in uh in in uh, grammar school who like i didn't know there were sequels like there's 11 of these games now or more i think like wow I, I, so like he was like oh you played dragon warrior did you play dragon warrior 4 and i was like there's three other games and he's like yeah four is really good and then so we stayed in uh i i played a lot more of those games nice have you gone back and played them as an adult did they age um i have gone back and played number one and number four over again uh they like talk about like foundational like dragon warrior one is the absolute simplest possible jrpg like it's like baby's first JRPG. It's still pretty good. <laughs> uh, Dragon Warrior Four was actually amazing at, at, at how well it held up for considering. Again, it's an NES game. Uh, it's enormously long for 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 an eight bit game. Uh, and then I just more more recently I played Dragon Warrior Eleven, which is like a modern game, and it's just as fun and weird because it's so clearly trying to like reference back to its own history. Like there are submissions in in that game that are eight bit. You just go back to an earlier game's art style. So, yeah, it holds up remarkably well for me. I mean, it's I'm sure it's a matter of So taste. that is something you have to do if you want to write in an existing property. You kind of have to like what came before it. And when they don't, fans like Revolt, you're seeing some of that with Star Wars. It's almost like some of the writers didn't like the source material. So I, I think it's, you know, when they honor what came first, I think that's always a good thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like that that nostalgia. So did you ever get into like Skyrim if you like the the fantasy RPGs? I played Skyrim, I played Oblivion. Um Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Played, uh well, it was it was Morrowind was on the regular Morrowind, Xbox. Yeah, Morrowind, Morrowind was my first one and then I played Oblivion and, and Skyrim. The um I, I had to go to an intervention. You need to. I had to go to intervention in a 12-step group and you know like I was just getting sucked in <laughs> Skyrim, man. Those evil Nords. But um, so uh, when you when you think about speculative fiction writ large, which is the umbrella that covers fantasy, sci-fi, horror, all of the things, what is it about that sort of umbrella group of genres that you love so much? Um, what I love is like you're learning an entirely new world every time. Like there's just new rules that you get to learn about. And like as a person who like likes to take in something and like well how would, what would i have done with that it's like you get a whole new play set every time you, you, you dig into a new sci-fi or fantasy setting uh i feel like like contemporary like a lot of genres you're constrained by either con the contemporary world or just reality in general but like there's no such constraints on speculative fiction and uh it, like I like them for different reasons. Like sci-fi, it's really fun watching how somebody tries to grapple with, well, how do we how do we close the gap between science as it exists now and science as we want it to be without making it such a jump that it seems like magic. And then magic, I enjoy for the fantasy because you get to just completely write it from scratch and just however you want it to be is the way it is. So just the sheer variety and the the like the amount of imagination you can showcase in, in speculative fiction is what makes it my favorite set of genres. Okay, so transitioning um, from the um, the writing side, how did your love of the genre, you know, the games, the movies, the books, how did that transition into you writing your own stories in this space? So again, we're going to go back to to Dragon Warrior for this one. Uh, I, my friends and I all really enjoyed the game and we did what I guess now, I mean, like we would just called it playing adventures, but now you might call it role. I guess it's role play. We didn't wear costumes. It wasn't live action role play or whatever. We weren't LARPing, but we were like improvising stories within the, uh, the, the, I was about to say the book of Deacon. That's my setting within the, the Dragon <laughs> Warrior setting. Uh, and then they grew out of it. And I just started writing down the ideas that I had that we didn't end up doing. And then, like, literally starting in second grade and ending after college, a gigantic mass of all those ideas eventually turned into the Book of Deacon. Uh, and so, like, yeah, it was it's just started with with uh, live action fan fiction of a very, very simple fantasy game and ended up into what some would say a very, very simple fantasy genre of my own. So that's the that's the thing with boys like we don't always you know we were doing that stuff before they had a name for it it was just the excuse to beat the crap out of our friends under the very thin veneer that we were playing insert whatever world yeah. or you know stand on the speed bump and who stays up the longest like <laughs> some things are timeless yep uh so Many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So do you think there were any specific uh, formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? Um, I would say because like all of the characters, all the main characters, even though a lot of them are women, uh, a lot of the main characters I write are just basically taking some aspect of me that either I wanted to fix or that I didn't, I thought was interesting that it wasn't fixed. And then 
use that as the basis for the character. Uh, in in the book of Deacon, Deacon is the the character who's supposed to be me. Uh, that's why it's the book of Deacon because he's the one writing it. Uh, so like, just just generally like the way that I interact with people and the way that I uh, observe the world would typically flavor the way one of the characters in it would uh, would would develop, and then. Frankly, I would just throw really unpleasant experiences at that character. It's like flagellating a little bit, you know. Like uh, <laughs> I need to, I need to punish the the parts of me that I considered to be flawed. Uh, so there's a lot of that. And also, if 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 I had had a conversation with you, and you ever said anything that I thought was clever or interesting, chances are that got filed away into a mental spot, and then that sentiment or line came tumbling out of somebody else's mouth. So I have tons of characters in my books that are explicitly based upon people in my life. And frequently those characters will say the lines that I sort of co-opted from them. My friend Carrie is the basis of several of my characters. And he said in real life, one of my favorite lines, which is, if you're going to say something wrong, oh no, if you're going to do something wrong, do it right. Uh, so that, <laughs> that, that got put into the, the, to the mouth of Desmares, who got his own spinoff book at one point. So do you ever write about your friends in that way? And they're like, no, I didn't say that. That was Bob that said that. You got it wrong in your memory? <laughs> I will. I mean, uh, like, I'm sure a lot of my friends, like, they have explicitly told me they don't remember saying these things. Uh, right. and, and also, like, I, I make it pretty clear that, like, sometimes I combine multiple people for the purpose of a character. And sometimes I sort of elevate the the rhetoric a little bit so that it's a little bit more uh in keeping with the general tone of other dialogue so whenever whenever i misremember something i can just say i was taking creative license <laughs> so that's one of the things i learned writing is sometimes uh like fiction like there there's the the bounds of what people will accept there's a couple of times i wrote about my own combat experience in some of my books and they're like now if you write that down nobody will believe it take it out and i'm like what do you mean nobody will believe it that actually happened to me and i like would give them the like the route report and you know like the incident statements because i still had them at the time and i'm like this happened to me and he goes i don't care nobody will believe it so take it out and that's the thing with fiction i think that's sometimes funny sometimes reality can be stranger than fiction but if you put it in a book no one would believe it yeah, yeah, it's like there are so there are, there are situations where it's like that was too perfect. That couldn't actually happen that way. Like, no, no, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have written that if it didn't happen because I wouldn't have been able to think of that. See, that's the thing that that Iraq proves to me. You know, just because you know when you have some some um, life threatening events happen in the movies, they always have that like perfect quippy one liner that just punches you right there. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't happen in real life. I remember like. I literally got out of a porta potty because they didn't have toilet paper. So I'm walking back to my truck. And right as I'm walking out, like just out of the safe distance, a mortar lands on that porta potty. And all I could think of was, man, that would have been a shitty way to go. If I was <laughs> writing that, I would have had something a lot more elegant to say, right? But but in reality, nobody thinks like that. But it doesn't it doesn't entertain as well. No, yeah, yeah. It's internal monologue very seldom seldom is like composed with the uh, with the thought of an audience uh, uh you know digesting it. Yeah, that's that's one of the things where like fiction can be fun like that because you can you can sort of play with reality a little bit. But so transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. But have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters yet? So I haven't had anybody cosplay my characters, although I had one person uh, who was at the time an avid cosplayer ask if I would create a character that she could cosplay. Because up until that point, uh, I never had a main character that was 
she was she's very dark skinned and I didn't have anybody of that description. So I actually created an entire race, not a race, an entire nation within one of my series that she could cosplay as. Uh, but I've gotten tons and tons of uh, of fan art. Like uh, I can't show it because I like no, it would be disastrous if I tried to to turn a, the camera. But like I have a painting on my wall right here uh, from the Book of Deacon, and um, almost visible right there in the picture is a picture of me riding a dragon, which was made by one of my brother's friends. I've gotten uh, little figurines from people, uh, and then tons and tons of just digital art. I used to have a gallery on my site. For them but it became really difficult to maintain so i can probably share uh before this goes up the um i had a master thread of art and lots of it was fan art and some of it was was commissioned but i've gotten so much art from fans I, it's one of my favorite things so this actual episode goes live in the first week of april so april 3rd so if we put a link to your um, newsletter if they sign up for your newsletter april may in the May newsletter, could you show some of that fan art so that way they have a reason to sign up? I can absolutely do that. Outstanding. So we'll link to his his website and how to sign up for his newsletter. And if you sign up uh, in the month this episode goes out, you'll be able to see that fan art because he, he sh showed me before when we've talked and it's, it's pretty amazing. I'm jealous no one's done that for me. Um, so if you're listening, take notes, right? I want that fan art too. Uh, no, and that doesn't mean break into his house and kidnap his. That's not the same thing. Um, <laughs> The the cool the hard thing I guess is when you write mill sci-fi is, you know, aside from the race issue as far as cosplaying, like who has the time and ability to make that space marine armor right? Like not everyone can be dedicated like the Warhammer 40k folks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they they exist though. Like I, one of my favorite things to look at on YouTube is is some of the the uh, the costuming people. Like there have been some some tremendous leaps and bounds in costuming technology once they start using this stuff called EVA foam to make stuff. So. You never know. Like every now and then, you'll find somebody who does something impressive, uh, just because yeah, they like your stuff that much. It is impressive. I've seen some of the finished product. I remember I went to I think it was RavenCon in 2016. They actually had a guy that was on stilts in the fake power armor, so he would be like the seven foot tall or whatever it is for the Warhammer. I'm just like I don't. That's a level of dedication I don't have. I'll be happy being a nerd and reading it and watching it, but yeah, that's that's a bridge too far for me. <laughs> But um, so we've talked about um, the fan art and the cosplay. Has anyone asked for your autograph? Uh, yeah, actually, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to speak at a, a sci-fi club's like meeting. And uh, mm -hmm. there were some folks there who none of them knew who I was before I, I went there. I was selected by the organizer. Not, not well, They didn't like ask for me. But uh, I talked for an hour. And then at the half hour mark, I was basically given a, a break and i spent the entire break i had been encouraged to bring paperbacks in case people wanted to buy them and i signed you know probably a dozen books so and that's like that's just the most recent one i used to go to conventions fairly frequently not so there was a time when i was a phony baloney games journalist and i would go to uh, penny arcade expo uh just to cover games and more than once I actually encountered fans, like I announced that I was going to those and like there were people like, I'm going too. So as a like a side trip during a, a journalism thing, I'd be like, oh yeah, sure, let's let's meet over at the food court and I'll sign something for you. Cool. Do you remember the first time someone asked you for your autograph? The first time, okay, so I used to sell like we'll go for first in person because I, I I would sell autograph books on my on my website for a while, and so I'm sure the first one was just somebody finding that sales link. 
But uh, the first time that somebody asked me for an autograph was I actually went to New York Comic Con just to go. I wasn't even part of like a, the games thing. And uh, I had, again, mentioned that I was going to do that. And the people, uh, it was a, a girl and her boyfriend at the time, I think they're married now, uh, who uh, they were like, hey, if you're going to be there, I want to get an autographed copy of your book. And I was like, okay, fantastic. And I just brought two copies of my books uh, because I know that my books are hard to find anywhere but online. And they apparently did not know that. So when they arrived, they're like, we tried so hard to find a book at the Barnes and Noble, but they said they would have had to order it. And where do we don't, you know, we and I was like, that's all right. I got one here. <laughs> so the first autograph <laughs> book I gave somebody, they, they thought they weren't going to be able to get it. And I was like, I got the new one and I got the original, which is it going to be? That's so awesome. That was memorable. So speaking of memorable, what was the weirdest or funniest, but family friendly uh, interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Okay. Um, so I get, I, I, I tend to, I hate to characterize it in this way, but it's, it's the way it is about every year or so. I end up with a fan that I will classify like behind the scenes as that fan, like the, that fan changes, but I usually have at least one that fan, uh, and they will send me, uh, just lots of emails, with a very clear agenda behind the emails and you say family friendly. So I won't try to delve into speculation here, but on more than one occasion, I've received multiple emails asking me why I don't describe the character's feet in greater detail. And oh. yeah. So I, I don't want to know why they, they are so interested in those characters feet, but that was some of the more entertaining emails that I've received. And also uh, I will have people ask like just, questions like for like a fantasy book and they'll be like what do you think would be his favorite heavy metal band if he was alive in the real world today and like i don't know how to answer that question that's literally impossible for me to have included in the story so i'll occasionally have to like really think abstractly to answer some of the fan mail okay that's um yeah, I'm sure the guy asking about the feet was just a podiatrist, and he was concerned about their health. And we're going to go For with sure. that and move on. Yep. Um, <laughs> so this is the part of the introduction where we talk about everything you have written, uh, Joe. So can you tell us what the uh, like the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Okay, so uh, my three, my big three series are the Book of Deacon, which is an epic fantasy series. Uh, it is six books long for its main plot, and then there's I don't know how many side stories, and it's. A fairly traditional like epic fantasy. There is a war that's spanning the war the world and has been going for so long they call it the perpetual war. And then our hero finds out that if, if she can get together the right group of people, they might be able to bring the war to an end. And like that's the sort of main thrust of that series. Uh the next book series I have is the Big Sigma series, which is uh I guess we'll be talking about it in a little bit greater detail later. But it is a sci-fi adventure series about a character named Lex Alexander, who was a racer who became disgraced and had to take some less exciting jobs. And then those less exciting jobs got more exciting. Uh, and uh, it's weird. It's a weird sci-fi and that there is no aliens in it. Uh, and then I have the Free Wrench series, which is my steampunk. And that is uh, it's not Earth. It's a different world uh, and uh, a terrible Thing that they call the calamity caused most of the primary continent to be covered in a poisonous mist and the only people who survived unchanged uh, were the people up on the mountaintops and so people get around in airships because it's uh, steampunk and that's what you do uh, people who were still in the mist turned into an entirely different type of person called a fug person or fug folk or fuggers if you don't like them okay. and then our 
our main character is somebody who's from one of the only island chains that was untouched by the calamity who has to venture into the the affected part of the world because they may have a cure for a disease that her mom has and then it becomes sort of this ensemble airship cast uh for the for the rest of the series so those are like the big three but there's lots more because i also have uh I have Shards of Shadow, which is a, a urban fantasy taking place in Philadelphia, where uh, there exist creatures that can pull your shadow off and take their place. I have got the the infamous Pizza Dragon book, which is called Structophus, and it's about a, a, a pizza oven that is also a dragon. I have got uh, the other eight. That still about... makes me smile, <laughs> that, yeah. that idea. I might be re-releasing it, because uh, I, at the very least, should call it Pizza Dragon, since that's what I call it when I talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've got the other eight, which is a bunch of superheroes with terrible powers. I've got uh, just more, more recently released. I've got Top Level Player, which is basically a ripoff of Ready Player One. Uh, I its working title was Ripoff Player One, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure I have more, but I just—that's well, enough. <laughs> yeah, and of course we'll link to all of his uh, his social media so you can find all of his books. Um, but while those all sound fascinating, uh, before we dig into the series, which he mentioned was the big Sigma series that brought him here, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. All right, come on, play that commercial. Oh, actually, in this case, it's the woman. Sorry, Katie. Hey there, this is author Katie Cross. I'm coming at you with an offer for a best-selling fantasy audiobook titled Flame, and it's totally for free. Here's a little bit more about it. Dragon servants Sana and Isadora Spence live deep in Leadham Wood, where persnickety dragons and wars on the borders are the least of their worries. Thanks to years of simmering tension, the hidden village is destined to crack, and soon. Sana's deep love for the giant beast causes her to make an irreversible mistake, while Isadora's disinterest in the dragons leads her to a fateful decision that will change the course of the entire world. Can the sisters prevent everything they know from falling apart? Or do they allow it to break and pave the way for new growth? Join the beloved Sister Witches in Flame, the first book in the Dragon Master trilogy. Just go to www.katiecrossbooks.com forward slash flame dash audiobook to get your free copy today. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial. And I don't know why it cut the last second off of her commercial. I apologize, Katie. Uh, they're good books, though. You should check them out. So thank you for sticking with us, though, through that commercial. Um, but let's not dally, because I will go far afield if you let me. And instead, we're going to talk about the book Bypass Gemini, which is the first book in the Big Sigma series. Big Sigma series. You just wanted to see if I could say that. Um where did you get the premise for the universe? Uh, like, how did you come up with the idea? Was it a Ouija board, psychedelics, strange pizza concoctions that just didn't come out as planned? Uh, so uh, I had written, at the time that I wrote the Big Sigma, uh, well, Bypass Gemini, Big Sigma 1, I had released, I had already written books 1, 2, and 3 of the, of, of, uh, the Book of Deacon. And I had actually written the Book of Deacon, which was one, like, half-million-word monster that I broke into three pieces. Uh, so they were all done and I had released the first two and they weren't making any money. So my assumption was that I was not good at writing fantasy. So let me try writing a sci-fi. And so I didn't really have any ideas initially, but I was just like, well, like, how am I going to write a sci-fi? Like I need somebody, I need to, a reason to explore space and, you know, militaries have been done an awful lot. And so I was like, well, how, what's, what's, what's a job that's exciting that would get you from here to there? Like, I don't know, uh, 
delivery boy. That's exciting. Sure. Why not? And I just sort of construct it with like, well, what would cause this person to uh, suddenly be in trouble? Well, it's going to have to be something to do with the package and, and so on and so forth. And I, I tried to build out the world such that if it was a good book, if somebody, if people liked it, then there would be lots of threads that I could connect in the future. So the, this book in particular, the, uh, the Bypass Gemini, it introduces at least three sort of ongoing problems that he's going to have to deal with in future books uh, uh and yeah so it was basically built just piecemeal out of i had already written story a in the fantasy setting what is completely a different story that uh that i would like to watch if it was a movie like i try i i, I write my books in a very cinematic way so i sort of wrote a, a, a sci-fi movie series in my head okay so before we get too started, we do have some families that actually listen with their kids. So when we talk about the Bypass Gemini in the Big Sigma series, like what age range would you say is okay for the for the reader? So uh, I it could go pretty young. Um, like the there's very little bad language in it. Uh, I, in general, I just don't use bad language, so it tends not to show up in my books. There's no explicit sex in it. Uh, there's some violence, but not like gory. Like Like it's not... It's just action violence kind of stuff you'd see in an action movie. Uh, so I mean, I wouldn't say I would like. I'm not going to say read it as a bedtime story to a four year old, but I would say you know, young adult is a person who is reading young adult books would probably be fine with this. Uh, there's, I would say like the the humor probably hues more toward people who were my age when I wrote it, so more in the in the late twenties. But you can get away with this. It, young teenagers, I'm sure, would be absolutely fine with it. Okay. So, I mean, you know, four-year-olds and, and below are pretty forgiving when it comes to bedtime stories, though. I used to do army running cadences for mine because I didn't know any lullabies. Okay. And, I mean, they, they came out okay-ish. Well, <laughs> so, okay-ish is a standing ovation right there. That's yeah. a parenting win, people. take Follow me for more instructions. But, um, uh, so, before we get in, the other thing we like to do is we like to look at the cover. So... I really do like the art that you did here. So what was the, like, like what's the story of this piece of art? Like how did it come to be? What was your vision? All right. So the, uh, the artist's name, uh, Nick Delagaris, and he has done almost all of my covers. He's fantastic. Uh, so this is, this is Trevor Lex Alexander and his flight suit. And uh, the case he's carrying is the package that is the source of all of his troubles in the book. And the beat up, weird, piecemeal ship on the bottom is is his ship, which is the it. That picture is of Betsy. Uh, that's what he called his ship. Through most of the rest of the series, he's flying a ship called the Son of Betsy, uh, which sort of gives you an idea of how things work out for Betsy. <laughs> but uh, well. uh, yeah, so that's 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 what we got going on here. He's just sort of. I wanted to show off his his ship, which we get to see better pictures of in future covers, uh, and uh, just give people a, an idea of our leading man, so to speak. Do we need a moment of silence for Betsy? Um, eh, Betsy changes. Like the the okay. core, the, the soul of Betsy survives. Also, okay. as I, I didn't I didn't even think about it. It's been so long since so I did I did this cover. The fact that there are two very visible stars is also uh, relevant if you read the entire book. Like Gemini is Gemini because it evokes two uh, two very similar stars are are central to the plot. Okay, and it, you know I grabbed because it was better better uh, version of the image. 
the audiobook cover, but as you can see in the top right, 10 CDs tells you just what age or how long this story's been out. Because um, I don't think you can even get CDs anymore for the audiobooks. The, the Books in Motion still does at least a, a print run of audio CDs. I know because they send me one copy of each one. <laughs> so I have, I have uh, as recently as, uh, as last month, I have received a, a, a 14 CD copy of one of my more recent, didn't list it before, the second epic fantasy series I wrote, which is called The Greater Land Saga. So CDs, amazingly, still being used. Interesting. I did not know that was a thing, but there you go. I don't know if anybody, everybody even has CD players in their cars anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's their worry um, if they buy it. I'm sure they have something to play it on. So moving on to the book itself, what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for Bypass Gemini? Um, okay. Well, imagine that you're a, a, a disgraced racer who's just trying to make his living doing something that involves going very fast. Uh, this involves being a, and you end up being both the chauffeur for a, a mobster and also delivering what may be stolen files from a very powerful corporation. And now you end up with both of those people trying to stop you from delivering the, the, the package. That's basically what we have in here. How are you going to survive that? Oh, and by the way, along the way, you encounter a completely insane engineer who may or may not give you things to help you or may just want you to test things that could kill you. Always fun, like Q with a mental uh, instability going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Carter is the guy's name, and he's a, he's a, he's a crowd favorite. Okay. Um, so what do you think makes your series special? Um, so, I mean, again, uh, in terms of sci-fi, it's a little weird in that it is not alien-focused. Like, one of the great reasons that people like to do sci-fi is so they can create an entirely new uh, race of creatures, or many. I mean, uh, Star Wars and Star Trek both are, you know, riddled with, with original races. Uh, I don't have any of those. This is very much like early expansion era humanity. So it allows me to be a little bit more contemporary, like the idea being that we put all of our resources into populating other planets. And so far, technology isn't ridiculously overboard compared to what we have already. Like we have very casual space travel. There's mechanisms within the story that allow faster than light travel very easily. But uh, the characters are a lot more... Uh, I don't know, relatable in terms of their motivations, like money is still a factor. <laughs> and uh, uh, there are pop culture references. Like there are some things that, that, that are references to modern day uh, pop culture that most of the people don't get because it's 400 years in the past for them, but the people making the jokes still think they're funny. So there is a, there's a, a type of creature that is not an alien. It is a genetic creation called a funk that is a cross between a uh, a fox and a skunk oh. and it's its name is solby which is short for soul brother so it's a funk soul brother and uh the collective like noun the collective noun for funks is a parliament so like there's lots of little things in there that like i wouldn't be doing in a wholly original setting so that's sort of fun too to be able to connect it to to the modern era in that way and uh i don't know i feel like my characters are pretty good i try to do a good job with my characters too so do you create pop culture, since we mentioned it, um, in this universe that is contemporary, so you can sort of mix it up a little bit? Yeah, there are. There's, a, there's a, like, bands. There's modern bands in it. The, the one's called Death Zone Dumpster. Like, there are, there are things within the setting that are unique to the setting. Um, and just 
extrapolations to what we currently have like there's not really tv it's obviously all internet now but it's not called internet either it's like i forget what i call it it's like the wire feed or something weird um so yeah i try to make it feel like it's not just one of the problems i had with with um uh ready player one is that by its very nature, it was supposed to be referencing stuff from the 80s. Like, there's a, they, they, they built the setting with an explanation for why there wouldn't be any pop culture past the 80s. Uh, and I didn't want to do that. So, like, yes, there's pop culture references, but this is not built upon old pop culture references. There's other culture, too. Yeah, that's the, the one. I've seen some pull it off, but, like, you know, it's 5,000 years in the future and unexplainably, like, they've got no modern culture, but everyone's still watching Shakespeare. Yeah, I would. I would like to hope we've had a few more great bards after him. Yeah, in five thousand years, you know, very much so. So, are there any tropes that you feel like bypass Gemini uh, hit the best when you were writing them? Um, I mean, so one of my favorite characters and one that becomes very significant earlier, uh, later in the series, is is an AI named Ma. And I like the idea of like a snarky AI. It's a really fun character to write. In this, in this book she's fairly limited because she was not a character i had intended to be a character she was just supposed to be a gag the gag was supposed to be he thinks he's talking to an automated voice system and it turns out that it's intelligent so like he makes an under you know make a snide comment under his breath and she reacts to it that was supposed to be the entirety of the character and by the second or third book in the series she's basically the second lead because she was just so fun to write so like a snarky ai is really fun i really like the idea of a mad scientist but I wanted one who, number one, wasn't a scientist because scientists don't build stuff. Engineers build stuff. So he's not a mad scientist. He's a mad engineer. He will get angry at you if you call him a scientist because scientists make guesses. Engineers make guns. So uh, <laughs> I love I love like that idea of like a completely unrestrained mad scientist who will who will do a mad engineer <laughs> who will build anything as long as he gets the opportunity to see if it works. So that's a fun uh, like archetype and trope to do. And uh, the cool ship, again, son of Betsy, I, I very much enjoy uh, as a creation within this first book, uh, and it becomes very crucial for the rest of the series that he's got the cool ship. So he's he he goes fast. Okay, so obviously this is sci-fi because we've talked about that from the beginning, and it seems like an action adventure story. But were there other genres or subgenres you feel like the story fits into? Um, so honestly, this first one, less so for the rest of the series, but for this first one, there's a strong film noir feel for it. Like, it, like the way that he gets the package, the way that the, it may as well be the Maltese Falcon for a little bit, like the MacGuffin that he's clutching on that, on that, on that cover, uh, the way that he's like running into mobsters, the mobsters are very mobstery, you know, uh, perhaps anachronistically so, but you know, crime, crime never changes. Um, yeah, so there's like a strong film noir aspect to it and a little bit of a thriller feel as well, just because of the nature of the threat. And honestly, because there's a mad engineer involved, you start getting gadgets in there and it almost gets Bond like in that way, like toward the toward the past a certain point in the thing. He's better equipped with stuff that like was fun to imagine as a gadget that can be used to save the day. I tried to make that a running thing that every book would have a handful of new gadgets, but I sort of fell away from it because it started to feel like I was, I had a checklist and I don't like to write with a checklist next to me. So uh, that became more organic later on, but yeah, sort of the, 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 the spy novel style, like insane gadgets was a uh, big part of it too. 
So let's talk about the story itself now. What can you tell us about the main character? And I know you gave his name earlier, but can you like restate that for our audience? So his name is Trevor Alexander, but he goes by Lex. Uh, he was a racer. He, he would in in the setting the basically the equivalent of NASCAR or whatever is called hover sleds, and he was a hover sled racer, and he was very very good at it, possibly one of the best. But his taste for uh, luxury got ahead of his actual earnings, so he started borrowing money, and he got in bad with the mob, and the mob wanted him to throw a. a this is all like talked about in the first chapter, so this is not spoiler. The mob wanted him to throw a. a, a a race and he did and they kicked him out of the the thing so he can't be a racer anymore and that all happened in the past so now he's got sort of a pathetic thing going on where he's a chauffeur and a delivery boy both within the city he's got the within he's on a planet called golana and uh, the city is called preston city so like he basically flies around on a really fast scooter when he's in the city he also still has the, the the limousine that he bought when he was a when he was famous so he uses that as a chauffeur and then he does uh, freelance deliveries uh, inter interplanetary. And that is the particularly dangerous thing that he does because you're not allowed to deliver things without paying money to the co corporations that maintain the corridors that, that connect the, the planets. Like they basically built a highway where like they know that there is nothing that you're going to crash into at FTL speeds. Uh, so you, you pay their toll and he can't afford, he can't make a profit if he's paying their toll. So he's basically angering the corporation every time he makes a delivery and uh, then somebody hires him to make a delivery which they don't want the corporation to know about and he's like oh, it's fine they're not supposed to know anyway and he takes it and then bad things start happening uh, and it turns out that it's very likely the corporation very specifically does not want that package delivered and the plot sort of centers around uh, him finding out why that is and what he's going to do about it so does that plot point get resolved in this novel or does it carry on through others? This it gets resolved in this novel. It's this, this one is fairly well self-contained with, with respect to its, uh, with, with respect to its actual, you know, uh, problem. But, uh, the characters introduced over the course of this end up being the source of new problems in the future. So if you only want to read one book, you can read this one and you'll get a full story, but, you will, you know, if you find yourself wanting to learn more about the characters, all of the characters eventually have their own problems that they need Lex's help with. Okay. So were there any secondary characters? You mentioned briefly the AI Ma, but were there any other secondary characters that um, that were in this novel that sort of were especially memorable for you? Um, yeah, so uh, Ma for sure. Uh, Carter is really good i really like writing carter carter the mad engineer like you could never make him the protagonist he's way way too sociopathic but so fun to write and then like there aren't a huge number like the the monster's name is is diamond nick patel he's fun but not not really like carry the story on his own honestly the second book in the series uh which is called uh unstable prototypes that introduces a lot more side characters. I end up having a lot of fun with. There's mercenaries in that one, so uh, mostly I think that the side characters that have the the best memorable, you know, most memorable are are Carter and and Ma. There's also Lex has a estranged girlfriend named Michelle, who I didn't think was particularly bad. I enjoyed writing Michelle. Michelle is the only book 
the only character in any of my books that I've had people explicitly tell me they don't like. <laughs> so I guess if, if you read it and like, she's not a huge part of the story, but if you read it and don't particularly like her, uh, good news. Some people agree with you. Bad news. She's in a lot of the books. <laughs> so why didn't they like her? So uh, he, she has good reason, but when she found out that he was in with the mob, uh, uh, she dumped him pretty soundly and he remained beat up about it for a long time. Uh, and so lots of characters, lots of readers who really like Lex and really like, you know, they want to root for him. She comes off as fairly antagonistic and particularly later in the series when, when uh, uh, her role starts getting bigger, friction continues. It turns out they're probably not a very good couple. <laughs> Okay. Uh, but, you know, you got to have someone to, to serve that role sometimes. Yeah. Um, yep. So, obviously, the corporations, if not evil bad guy, they're at least the antagonist at some level. But were there any other bad guys in the mob, as you mentioned? Were there any other bad guys that uh, Lex has to face in this series? Or specifically so, this book? With specifically, well, it's, so specifically in this book, it's it's the the corporation. I would say is our main antagonist. Uh, honestly, when it all comes down to it, the mobster is a pretty nice guy. Uh, w when it comes, did to they the, pay you to say that? <laughs> no, I, I assure you, he, he's just I, a sanitation engineer. People, he doesn't know why you're getting so bent out of shape. He's in construction. It's fine, uh, but. Uh, Later in the series, we start to get, there's a type of, uh, there's a thing called the gen mech, which I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but it's very important and sort of scary. Um, there are other mobsters, which are much less nice of, of guys uh, that are a problem. And also, there's a, a, a set of uh, like t uh, terrorists called Neo-Luddites, which are very interested, contrary to what their name would suggest, they're very interested in replacing current technology with, with better technology. Which oh, okay. Is, in order to replace current technology, you have to destroy it. <laughs> so that's what they feel anyway. So the Neo-Luddites as, as a group become a, a big problem over the course of the, the thing where they're trying to drastically damage modern technology so that new technology can replace it. The, the funny thing is the, the, there was a construction in New York City, and it was probably a body dumped by the mob, but just strangely, a body happened to be found in the foundation in the cement of one of the buildings when they were doing repair. And as they're digging this body out to do the repair, they find one of those old Nokia flip phones. And no lie, they plug it in and it still works. After being <laughs> buried in construction in 20 years. That's fantastic. Every, yeah, you've almost got to find a version of that to put in a modern story because... I mean, if if you got a modern Apple phone, that thing is dead. Like they're not oh, they're yeah. not calling that back. Um, sure. So so that brings me up. The reason I mentioned that is with technology, there's two approaches to writing technology in sci-fi. They make it rugged and durable because you know you're taking it to vacuums of space and in you know uncharted wilderness, etc. Or you know you've got the glass jaw kind of technology, like you know an Apple phone. You look at it funny, and the screen's gonna crack. Please don't sue me, Apple. Uh, other smartphones do the same thing. So what was your approach when you were designing this technology or did you mix the two? So I mixed the two. Basically, the implication is like there are there's consumer grade technology still and there is like professional grade technology. Like the equivalent of, of a cell phone or like a smartphone within this is called a slide pad. And there's actually joke like there's a lot of jokes sort of implying that the trajectory of, of consumer electronics continued like 
it's still basically the form factor of a smartphone. And I make a gag about how like we tried doing, you know, installed chips in our heads, but they still have updated them every six months and nobody wants to have a major surgery every six months to replace their chip. So like a lot of stuff stayed the same, but then there's these things called data pads, which are way more rugged. In fact, in, in, um, in the second book, the presence of like a big chunky, like military radio that like it withstand getting a shot with a blaster is like a fairly important piece of electronics that he gets his hand on. And our, 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 you know, Carter, uh, Carter is very, very interested in making stuff that lasts. So he, uh, he, he makes some hardcore stuff that's very, very old. And also he has a tendency to take old ships and uh, upgrade them to modern technology. So there exists technology that's built to last. Uh, but also a lot of the stuff that people use day to day is like basically considered disposable. Okay. So the, uh, the corporations want you to have to buy more. So they didn't make it as sturdy. Okay. I get that. That fits with world building. So we mentioned your characters. We talked about, you know, the good guys, the bad guys and secondary characters. So as authors, we tend to do a lot of awful, horrible, terrible, no good things to the people we write about. So if your characters met you in a dark alley and they knew that you were Joseph R. Alalo, the god of their world and the designer of their torment, how do you see that interaction playing out for you? So, yeah, no, it wouldn't go well, particularly for particularly Lex. Lex would not be very happy with me because he's, his life is a minefield. Uh, I actually, I used to do a thing on my, on my uh, uh, blog where I would do like character interviews and people requested a character interview with Ma, the AI. And I, uh, the gag of the interview was that Ma figures out that she is a fictional character that's being interviewed. <laughs> and so, like, so technically, the that interview is an example of me meeting a fictional character because she's like, "Oh, okay, no, I see how this works." <laughs> uh, she's okay with it because she's already artificial. So, what does she care? But yeah, like my my characters would be very angry with me. My I I, I am the source of great torment. They, most of them come come through okay. I think I take care of my my characters for the most part. With one glaring example from the Book of Deacon series, most of my characters eventually come out okay in the end. So, speaking of the characters, you you mentioned Lex was a crazy driver that you know drove for the equivalent of NASCAR Formula One type deal. Uh, if he had a you know either a car now or one of the vehicles he would have driven in the in the world dealer's choice, if he was driving, would you get in the passenger seat with him or would you pass? Um, I would get into the passenger seat with him if I could have like a five point harness. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one, one of the first things that happens in, 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 uh, in big sig or bypass Gemini is he is driving the, the limo for somebody who has not scheduled their travel adequately. And so th that person is a passenger of him in the car when he's showing off and it is, you know, life threatening, but whatever, it, you know, you, you get to the flight on time. So, I mean, I wouldn't enjoy it. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a thrill ride kind of guy, but I, it'd be worth it once as long as I, you know, could immobilize my neck and not get whiplash. So you'd want a little bit of plot armor, but then you'd give it a go. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he's good. <laughs> he's, again, talking about archetypes, like he's the guy who might be precognizant in his ability to drive his vehicles. Like he's... The idea of being with these corridors is that they're the only known safe way to get from A to B, and he doesn't use them. So he's got something wow. going on where he's able to get, you know, he he gets there safe. So have you seen the uh, have you seen the movie The Fifth Element? I have. Yes. The opening scene where the uh, Bruce Willis's character is driving the taxi. That's what I'm envisioning now. Yeah. It, I, I, you know <laughs> what? 
I probably didn't do it on purpose, but I'm sure there's more than a little bit of uh, of inspiration from that scene. Uh, outstanding. Uh, and since we've been talking about characters, do you have a favorite character archetype when you write your books? Uh, yeah, I mean, I like I like the character who has like who is the best at a thing. Like I, I really, really enjoy a character who's just like the expert. And occasionally you can that, that can, can come off as, as a Mary Sue or, or uh, a Gary Stu. I typically just say Mary Sue for, for characters of both genders. So I try to make make sure that that thing is not like unstoppable. Like being a good racer, being good at flying a, a, a ship, extremely useful, cannot be used to solve all the problems. So you, you just write a story where problems that can't be solved by flying fast show up every now and then. But I just really love a, a story where like this person is the unquestioned master at their chosen field like in in free wrench uh nita grouse the main character is an extremely talented mechanic and then uh, you know in this he's a great pilot uh miranda from from book of deacon is an incredibly skilled wizard and i just sort of always find myself using that same archetype uh, where where you just give our main character the reason that they are embarking on this quest is because they have this one thing that they're just so good at. And I just always enjoy that. Okay. Um, so now we're going to take a sneak peek behind the curtain and see how the sausage was made. So were there any cool scenes or ideas that you had to cut from Bypass Gemini um, that would be entertaining to our, to our listeners and viewers, even if you know, you used them later or didn't, or might use them in the future. So, uh, yeah, again, when we talk about Carter, Carter making uh, inventions, um, I came up with a gigantic list of inventions for Carter to use. And a lot of them ended up getting used later on. But like, uh, what's, a, what's a good example? I, I should have actually written it down before uh, I started. But like, basically, he's a he's a mad engineer who desperately wants he doesn't care if it's he if he has the idea he wants to be able to test it and there's a section in his in his um in his laboratory it's called like the hall of rejects where it's like technology that he could never quite get to work and there are probably i don't know a full there's probably a full notepad somewhere in my house that's like things that are in the hall of rejects that either i felt like it was too dangerous for him to use or just it would have made the story too easy if it was a thing that worked and the only hints you get in the story, he has an end user agreement that you have to sign if you're going to be testing stuff for him. And some of the things on that are like, uh, you know, you will not, you know, find me cap uh, uh, culpable if uh, there's a gray goo, gray goo scenario or a red goo scenario or tectonic reverse reversal. And like, <laughs> what are, what are these things? And they're not they're not mentioned later, but like, I have I have whole scenes where like I establish what the red goo scenario is. Is it known what a gray goo scenario is? No. Okay. Gray goo uh, is when there is self-replicating machines that turn an entire planet or an entire whatever into more of those self-replicating machines until the, every piece of matter that's available to them has been turned into more self-replicating machines. So that's a gray goo scenario. The red goo scenario is where that only happens to living things. <laughs> and it was like... Oh. That was really gross to me, and I thought that would be a great like horror turn for something, but I can't write that. So like that's a cutting room floor that never got used, sort of. <laughs> you know, now I'm intrigued. You can find elements of, of where I would have gone with it, uh, but uh, 
and also yeah tectonic reversal like that just that's what is that that's continents flipping over how the heck does that happen <laughs> so i never actually came up with a way that that would happen but the, the concept that you, you would have something that could cause that to occur is sort of in there you're not the only one who had that idea i remember a couple years ago one of our politicians they just you know we've got a lot of elderly ones uh, asked if we put too many soldiers on guam if the island would flip over that is hilarious yeah, and I, I don't I don't think party matters. I think it's just a product of sometimes they've been in office a little too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly or, see that. Or my other theory is that politicians get so used to just reading what's handed to them that he read it without thinking and like his intern is messing with him. Oh, that I would love that <laughs> if that's what was happening. Which I actually like as a as a obviously as a US citizen who votes, I would prefer that scenario actually. <laughs> I would absolutely prefer that scenario. I want to believe that somebody couldn't have come up with that idea on his own. Like or at least not sincerely believe, yeah. but you know, I, I've seen enough of the sci-fi um conspiracy theories like the moon landing was faked and the earth is flat to know there are definitely special people out there. So Yeah. Um, so finally, what can you tell us about the larger universe? As in many stories, especially the good ones, the worlds where the story takes place are as much character as the antagonist and protagonist. So other than the, the stuff you've already given us, is there anything about the setting that sort of makes it unique? So again, this is like the, the setting is like 400 years in the future, and we have probably explored about 15% of the galaxy, and we've probably settled about a handful, a few hundred planets. and um, there are like prequels and sequels that sort of indicate that there are three like not warring but rival uh, uh, planetary federations more or less, and the one that contains Earth is not central to the plot at all. But like, so we know that there is an Earth out there, and it's doing fine. It's one of the big three, uh, and it's just sort of whatever. Like they're doing their thing, we're not doing that. So. Uh, like the idea that we get to see just tiny little peaks of what the main power structure is doing because our characters are so like zoomed in on what they're doing is is fun. And also um, because of events that happen, I can't really spoil, but because of events that happen within like books two and three, uh, the implication, actually, it, there's a book called uh, Temporal Contingency, which the name would suggest involves time travel. There are elements of the books that indicate that events in later books took place before events in earlier books. And like there are purposeful spots where you can check to see that that's happening. And the implication is that we haven't found all of them. Uh, so like the idea that this that the, the, the timeline of this setting is nonlinear, it loops back on itself, I think is, is a fun thing to explore and like to see how deep that could potentially go. That almost sounds like it would give me a headache trying to plan the world Bible for all of this. Yeah, uh, the the plot for that book, I actually did a video on it. I had to do a video on it. It's spoilerific. Don't look the video if you haven't read it, if you plan to read it. But it's not a, like the outline is a flowchart that loops back on itself. It's incredibly hard to keep track of. Time travel stories are hard. Was that your intention going in? Yeah, I have a friend, uh, his name is Sean, who is, his favorite movie is justifiably, uh, the the Back to the Future trilogy is his favorite movie. He considers them to be one. Uh, and he desperately wanted me to write a, a time travel story, and so I did, and that's Temporal Contingency. And I had to, I was originally not going to write it the way he wanted me to. He wanted, I was going to write it in such a way that the events were so separate from each other that there wasn't any, like, 
you know, you see, you meet your own self. Uh, and he was like, you got to have meet your own self as a plot element. So I completely rewrote it for him. And that is why things got incredibly complex because I like have to have, I, I had to go on the entire way that time travel works and how causality works within this setting. And I had to make sure that there was a, there was the capability for all this to occur and the ability to loop multiple times without it being boring because you're repeating events. So it was, it's not easy. Uh, did you, it was, I think it came out pretty good. Did you play with the, uh, the um, multiple dimension aspect of every time you take a fork in the road, like you, you change the path. So there's multiple versions of the timeline or did you keep it sort of consistent? So, Within within temporal contingency, the idea is that there is really only like how can I put this? Um, the idea is that it's seamless whole. Anything that happened in the past definitely happened within that setting. Uh, but later on in the series, it's indicated that's just one of the ways that time travel can happen. So I do mess with every fork changes things pretty significantly uh, in in the last book in the series that I just wrote. Nice. So are you familiar with the show Kate and Leopold, the time travel show? I am not. I mean, I've heard uh, of it. Terry, yeah, I've heard of it too. Terry Mixon was telling me that was one of the examples of how to do it wrong. They realized that they had to catch it after they finished the movie uh, when the, they were beta testing it. They, When they had him go back in time, they accidentally had him have um, a situation, shall we say, because we're family friendly, with his own grandmother or mother, it was a familial relations that they just somehow missed when they were writing the time travel. Wow. So that's the, you know, and Back to the Future did that too, where like, he, remember, he meets his mom at the dance. Yeah. Um. So it's it's one of the tropes almost that, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be cool to see a new version of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I do it both ways. I do it like the plot of, of contem temporal contingency sort of makes the assumption that there is only one way that it can go. And then the plot uh, that I work from after that indicates that through other means, uh, it can go any which way that you need it to go. Okay. So Bypass Gemini is clearly part of a series. We've talked about that um, throughout the, the episode. Um, there are currently six books out in the series according to Amazon, but uh, is their story done? Is there more in this universe or this specific series? So I had uh, intended there to be six main series books and a couple of spinoffs. Uh, and then I started to get, talking about like things that were on the cutting room floor. I started having ideas that were a little too off the wall uh, that I ended up not using for earlier books. And I thought, well, if I just if I give these a little like self-contained aspect of like I want to write a serial where I took a bunch of those ideas and uh, and then use them all for like individual isolated things. So the plan was for me to write a, a sort of an unofficial seventh book that was just going to be called Quantum Shift, and it would be done in episodes. And then NaNoWriMo last year came along, and I didn't have a better idea for NaNoWriMo, so I just made all of the episodes at once. And uh, so now there's just a seventh book called uh, uh, Quantum Shift. It's not out yet. I just got the cover two days ago, so I'll probably be putting it up for pre-order soon. Uh, but yeah, Quantum Shift is, is, is going to be the seventh book in the series. And it is about, um, well, apparently you can break time, basically, is, is, the, uh, is the elevator pitch for that one. What if you broke time? Okay. So you've talked a little bit about all the various tech throughout this interview that you put up and created for this world, including some that, you know, the Hall of Broken Misfit Toys. Um, of all that technology that you created in the Big Sigma universe, which would you want for your daily use? 
I mean, it'd be nice to say something like, you know, the faster than light travel. And there's no, there, I was going to say there are no transports. There are transporters eventually. But honestly, and I wax poetic about it in the first book, um, there is the equivalent of Wi-Fi routers, but it's just to charge your phone. And like they're everywhere. So you never have to charge your phone. Everything is wirelessly, wirelessly charged all the time. <laughs> and I just wish that was just the way it is. Just like the act of existing near a device, make sure that everything I've got is topped off all the time. Uh, that would be my, my, my favorite thing. Okay. So <laughs> on the one hand, the army in me says you always have everything topped off because you never know when you're going to need it and stuff could just go down at any moment. The flip side of that is I know with modern technologies and batteries, it's bad to not drain them and then refill them and drain them and refill them. So, yeah, yeah that's, you know, that's a, you know, <laughs> you, you're playing, a, with, a, a you're playing with both sides of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you use and abuse that FTL tech? Uh, well, I mean, so there's a couple of things. I often think about how, like, you know, the, if the ship can travel faster than the speed of light, but light can't, like, light can only travel the speed of light, definitionally. Like, I do like the idea. I think this actually happened in a Guardian to the Galaxy comic book where uh, you just go far enough away that the original broadcast of something is still propagating out. So, like, oh, you know, I missed that episode of the show. Let me just go faster than the speed of light so that the the, the radio waves are a week away. And then just witness it live. <laughs> like that sort of thing is like a weird little thing you could do. I've often thought about how like if you can, if you were to travel faster than the speed of light and then look through a telescope, you'd be looking directly into the past, uh, which is an interesting thought. Um, and then just, I mean, capitalism wise, just find a plant that's got a lot of a resource that we need and go there and get it. Yep, that would that would be a good way to do it. So you've mentioned that your um, this big Sigma series does not have aliens in it or fantastical creatures, but you've clearly written other series that do. So you know, moving past just the big Sigma universe, when you go about creating these aliens and magical creatures and whatnot, how do you create them? Do you get let your nightmares inspire you, Mother Nature? Do you take folklore? Like what is like? How do you go about creating these fictional beings that you write about? So I definitely call a lot on, on folklore and like established fantasy tropes for a lot of my fantasy stuff. Um, there are, by the way, eventually uh, exotic creatures within Book of D uh, within uh, uh, Big Sigma 7. Big Sigma 7 finally gets to play with some creatures that are not of human origin. Uh, and they fall into the same list of the answer I'm about to give here. Um, I like to look at sort of either what's something I haven't seen anybody do yet. Uh, and, and try to figure out just a cool thing to do with it. Or what's a thing I've seen somebody do, but I've never seen them do this with it. So like I have written a short story that was under the working title, Fat Unicorn. And it's about a fat unicorn. And one of the things about it is like, this is a big, heavy animal with a spike on its head. This is a formidable warrior. Sure, it's, it's cute. But also, I don't want two tons of meat with a pointy part charging at me. So, like, I try to look at the uh, the aspects of a, of, a, of a fantasy creature that other people haven't messed with. And with the newer epic fantasy, which is the Greater Land Saga, there's uh, uh, the concept of greater and lesser creature, like, greater and lesser fantasy creatures. So, like, the greater dragon is the dragon we think of as dragons, and a lesser dragon is these weird uh, 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 flocking little lizard things. And The lesser unicorn is basically a goat. 
but weirdly smart and stupidly strong. So I like to do variations on things. And like when I start to invent like a sci-fi creature or something like that, I just think about like, I've read, I read a lot of nonfiction and a lot of nonfiction talking about like the way creatures would develop is there might be little green men, but they're not green men. Like they're not, the only thing we know for sure is they're almost certainly not men. They're going to look something way different from us. So I look at like other form factors of, of body that like have all the requirements of intelligent life. So like, it's got to be able to communicate. It's got to be able to manipulate its environment. And really that's it. Like, I guess, you know, it's going to have to process energy and stuff like that. But like, I try to take a new set of, of, of tools that would be able to bring about the same level of technology and society as we have and either do that in fantasy and justify it with magic or do it in sci-fi and justify it with evolution. Okay. I like that. So clearly this interview is winding down, but before we, we wrap it up and let you go, was there anything about bypass Gemini or the big Sigma series that we didn't ask you that you want to tell us? Um, I think I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, again, quantum shift is fun. Uh, I'll be I'll be uh, it probably it might be. I can't say probably. It might be in pre-order when this goes out. But like, if you end up uh, reading any of this, and like like the idea of like what if stories or like Elseworld stories from comics, uh, I get to play with a lot of completely weird nonsense in the in the in the in the seventh one. The seventh one was just for me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was making myself happy with these stories. Absolutely. So before we let you go, dear listener, this is the part where we harken back to our origins and we remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. And uh, legend has it when he gets his thousandth review on every one of his books, Amazon will deliver a unicorn to his address. And I, for one, would like to know what a unicorn steak tastes like. So like, let's not uh, let's not deprive him, people, and go you know read the books and then leave reviews. Um, with that being said, Joe, can you tell um, listeners how they can find you? And as usual, it will be in the show notes. So uh, you can find me. My website is bookofdeacon.com. Uh, all one word, no dashes or anything. Uh, and that you'll find all of my other links there. I am J-R-L-A-L-L-O on almost every social media platform. And if I'm not, then I'm Joseph Lalo of some combination. There's only one other famous Joseph Lalo, and he's a saxophone player in Australia. So if you search for someone and find a saxophone involved, that's not me, but the other one is probably me. And you can just, you'll just search for Joseph Lalo, L-A-L-L-O. Uh, so did you ever learn to play the saxophone just to confuse people? I have a saxophone. I don't have the windpipe for it. I just, I, 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 get a note out. I can't hold a note. Uh, so uh, he's safe. Ah. Uh. We, we can have to get the kind like they do, you know, where you put a, like a tape player in the end and you fake it. <laughs> Yeah. And then you can like do your your inner Kenny. Was it Kenny Rogers or whatever that was the saxophone player? Just dance around with it. You got this. Oh sure. <laughs> All right, and you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups 
backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. We have a Facebook page where you can also follow us and find our book recommendations and such. Uh, we do not have enough followers yet to have a dedicated URL, but search it, follow it, and uh, and you won't be sorry. We're finding you all kinds of excellent books to read and book reviews of them. Uh, we have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley be sure to put in the comment section that is for the podcast and i promise i will keep my co-hosts doc seska and nick garber duly caffeinated they will drink until their liver surrenders and if they were here they would tell you mama didn't raise no quitters so with that being said thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for nick garber and doc seska i am jr handley and this was the blasters and blades podcast we'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge your love of nerd culture cheesy jokes and all things that go boom. Thank you for coming, Joe. That's this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you again this, uh, later this week, people. <laughs>